Hello and welcome to this new edition of the Fuji podcast, where we look back at the past year and what 2023 will bring us. Welcome to the Fuji podcast, all your news about OpenJDK. Today we have a special podcast edition, as we only have one guest. Ted Neuwert published a long post in which he reviewed the predictions he made one year ago and added a long list of predictions for this new year. Welcome Ted, can you introduce yourself please? Hi, my name's Ted Newart, and as I say on my bio for conferences and whatnot, I'm a big geek, period, full stop. <laughs> the rest is all details that most people don't care about. I've been in tech since uh, uh, since writing AppleSoft Basic code in 1978 on an Apple II Plus, and um, I've been writing these predictions now for let's see, 2005, so 18 years. Each year, I do a predictions post of one form or another. And I keep them all up on the blog. So if anybody wants to see how, uh, you know, how accurate I've been over the years, more than welcome to go take a look. Yeah, we definitely will add a link to the to the podcast show notes that everyone can review these uh, all these predictions. Uh, I'm Frank, I'm a Java developer and technical writer at Azul and making this podcast yeah, out of interest and uh, as you say a geek. I consider these as a quality trademark, a geek and a nerd. <laughs> uh, I started uh, with the Commodore 64, so uh, it's about the same time that uh, we started experimenting yeah, with yep. all this this uh, technology stuff before we start uh, reviewing and, and looking forward um why what is your goal in creating this list is it a challenge for yourself uh, well okay, it's it's a combination of things right part of it is i read a, a sort of a business book number of years ago like i don't know a decade ago or something i think it was called super predictors and it was analyzing, you know, people who make predictions and then looking at the people who are really good at predictions. And it kind of, you know, gave me a sense of, yeah, I, I, I want to try this. I want to try to hold myself up to it. I'll, I'll do it, you know, firmly in the space that I think I know a fair amount about. But the other is very honestly going way back. I've watched year after year all these, these, you know, the Gartners and the Deloitte's and so forth, and they charge just ridiculous sums of money to do incredibly vague predictions. I mean, you know, they're, they're almost Nostradamus-like in the sense that we predict tech will get bigger. Okay, that's not really saying any, we think AI will be a force to be reckoned with. I mean, that's it's like reading the astrology column in the newspaper, right? Mystery is due to strike your life. And you say, oh, I wonder what that could mean. Oh, my gosh, mystery has struck my life. You know, the gullible love it and the cynical get nothing from it. I thought, you know, let me let me take a pass at it. Let me see. And the first year I did it, had a couple of people say, yeah, that was kind of fun to read. And frankly... You know, it, it's it's an opportunity. I mean, as humans, we love ceremonies anyway. So doing something at mm -hmm. the end of the year, closing out one year, opening up the new year. It's just, you know, it's it's, um, you know, it's it's kind of a scratching an itch personally and, um, you know, kind of testing myself professionally. How accurate can mm -hmm. I be? That's part of the reason why I go back every year and look at my predictions from the previous year to see how accurate I was. If we look back at, at the prediction of 2022, were you happy with the results? 
I, I came in above average. Um, usually I'm, you know, I'm at about 50% in terms of how I score, you know, um, and I explain my scoring. I do it very simply. It's a plus one, a minus one, or a zero for a given prediction. This year, I think I came out like 65%, you know, meaning I did better than normal. Uh, which means either the predictions I made were not particularly challenging or I had, I don't know, deeper insight or or better luck or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I'm happy. But on the other hand, some of the stuff I predicted was kind of sad. You know, so like I, I, I talked about the complete collapse of the cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. And I've been actually saying that for a couple of years now. And lo and behold, they did. And it's not like I'm happy about it. About yeah. it because lots of people lost lots of of you know savings and and hard-earned money and whatnot but i'm happy that people on the whole are starting to wise up to the ponzi scheme that is nfts and cryptocurrencies and so forth so i'm kind of happy but i'm kind of not you know yeah. so it's it's hard to say on that particular one yeah. but all of them kind of you know mixed together like that yeah, definitely some some stuff happened that yeah wasn't able to predict like a new war in in Ukraine and what happened with oh COVID gosh. in the last year. So yeah, a part of the technical challenges. Yeah, we also have these kind of stuff. Eh? Now, um, if there's one thing we can thank COVID for, it's the work from home, which yeah totally True. changed how people work, how they uh, yeah how you oh yeah cooperate with 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 your uh, employer. Um, you say that this will change further in this year? What do you think about that? I think what's going to happen is it's going to normalize, right? I think um, there are a number, a lot of people sort of assumed that when COVID hit, we would all work from home. And then as soon as the pandemic was over, everything would go back to normal. That is to say, everything would go back to the way that it was. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding is, I mean, A, the pandemic lasted longer than anybody thought it would. Right. I mean, with with very few exceptions, most of the people, at least the people that I talked to in the articles that I read, you know, the predictions were from six months out to 12 months. Nobody really predicted that. And and technically, if you talk to the CDC and other medical professionals, you know, it's still going right. The Center for Disease Control is still recommending that people mask up. We're kind of burying that because it's not very exciting news and we don't particularly like it. But, I mean, technically, the pandemic is still going on. We've just kind of said, well, we have vaccines now. We'll deal with it, right? Got you know, used to it, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we basically have normalized the idea of, okay, you'll catch COVID every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And for, for the people who are, you know, at risk, uh, people who are immunosuppressed, eh. I mean, that, that's kind of collectively where we as a Western society have, have taken things. But... Going back, COVID introduced work from home. And before COVID, work from home was one of those things that was really a, I mean, it it was the exception to the rule. Most companies, if you were going to talk about remote work, you really had to be a, uh, you had to be a stalwart performer. You really had to have, you know, made your mark within the company and built all this credibility and so forth before they would consider letting you work from home. Or it was a, you know, once a week, mm-hmm. maybe twice a week, again, if you are a really, really high performing kind of individual. But, you know, COVID absolutely normalized it for almost anybody. 
right? Obviously, frontline workers, people who are doing, you know, in-person services like house cleaning and so forth, that wasn't an option. But for those of us in the tech space, I mean, realistically speaking, 98% of all the technology jobs can be done remotely. I mean, mm. that's basically what the cloud has proven even before that, right? We don't even need people to walk the server racks anymore mm. because we have people to do that. We call them Microsoft and we call them Google and we call them Amazon, you know, et cetera. COVID got all of us to work from home and set up our home offices. And a lot of us said, this is not bad. This is, I mean, yeah, I miss my coworkers. I miss being able to go out to lunch with people and so forth. But this is not terrible. And for a number of people, it solved a number of logistical issues. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everybody loves work from home, right? It can get very, very isolating and you can feel very, very alone, particularly if you're the only one in the apartment or in the house or whatnot. But then when the pandemic, quote unquote, was over, a lot of companies turned around and said, oh, everybody back to the office. And a bunch of people in tech said, no, why should I? And company, I mean, Disney just this week, Bob Iger came back and said, you know, Disney employees four days a week from the office. And I think what's going to happen is there's going to be an absolute flight of talent from Disney because of that, because enough companies are going to say, particularly the smaller the company, the more likely they are to do remote, because now we know we can do it. And remote opens up a couple of things that didn't have before. Most notably, I can draw talent from anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. right? As long as my company can figure out how to work asynchronously, that's the key part. That's the part that everybody finds difficult about work from home or work from anywhere is the idea that we have to work asynchronously now. Mm -hmm. uh, but once we figured out how to work asynchronously, once we know how to do things um, without having to call meetings where everybody has to be the same point on the time-space continuum, now all of a sudden you've opened yourself up to getting the best talent from anywhere within a certain time zone range, right? Mm -hmm. For us in the States, we span four time zones. That's pretty reasonable. Europe spans three time zones. That's pretty reasonable. Cross continent can be a little tricky, not impossible, right? As you yourself know, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, but you know, it's certainly easy to do. I mean, I spent a year and a half working for a company that was in the Eastern time zone while I'm over here in Pacific mm -hmm. and it was three hour offset and we were able to navigate it quite comfortably. Mm, and so that's why I think the work from home thing is going to get normalized as basically just another location for a lot of companies. Um, there are some there are some issues that pop up, most notably with the Byzantine tax system that we have in this country, right? Because different states have different rules regarding income tax. But I think those are navigable once once we start to figure out what those rules are. But this year, I think there are going to be a lot of companies that are going to kind of settle in and say, all right, if you want to be remote, that's fine. We like it if you come into the office, but this is where our policy is going to be. They'll spend, you know, they'll, they'll have spent the last year and this year kind of figuring out what works best across everybody in the company. And then they'll settle in and that'll be their policy. And I'm pretty sure it'll include some amount of remote work, some amount of remote workers. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's not only work from home, it's work from everywhere or anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And the war and on talent is yeah, finding the people where they are. Yeah. 
And the work from anywhere thing enables a number of things that companies would never really have thought to do. I mean, in the United States, we have an incredibly strong hustle culture. And so the idea of, you know, going to go visit my parents and still being able to turn in a full work day as opposed to having to take PTO, that's very attractive mm -hmm. to a lot of people. It's very attractive mm -hmm. to a lot of companies. Yeah. And I think that's what's going to kind of, you know, open it up and normalize it. I don't think we're going to go back to the everybody always goes to the office culture that we had circa 2019 and earlier. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's also a system that at Azul, I think they call it follow the sun. There is a support team in every time zone. And yeah. that's critical for, yeah. for what Azul does, for what, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if you sell a service worldwide, right? So if you've got a DevOps team and you're having to manage your own services, you know, support your own services, having at the very least having some kind of support staff in on, on each of the major continents so that you can follow mm -hmm. the sun, like you said, that's huge. That's yeah. absolutely huge. Okay, uh, let's go to the following topic. You have a long list of predictions, so we'll pick, <laughs> pick, pick out a few. Um, one of them that I find uh, interesting is, is the microservices uh, discussion. I've always found it difficult to define what is a microservice. I once heard it's uh, what a two pizza team can build in two weeks or can replace yeah. in two weeks, so eight people, let's say. What is your definition of a microservice? Do you dare to say something? <laughs> I think that's part of the problem is we never really could come to a definition from a from a, a a technology a surface area point of view as to what a microservice was. Frankly, we had some of the same problems when service first came along, right? Service oriented architecture, so and whatnot, and lots of people were talking about services, but we could never really decide on the granularity of a service, right? There were some people that I talked to. We thought a service was essentially kind of like, you know, a database. The database was a service and it could provide a lot of different functionality through a common interface. Other people I talked to said, yeah, the service is basically like a stored procedure to the database, right? It does exactly one thing narrowly well, right? So almost a single HTTP API endpoint was a service. And that never got any better. And then we got to microservices and realistically the microservice thing, number one, it was cargo culting from the beginning, right? It was people saying, oh my gosh, Amazon has been very successful. We need to do what they do. And Amazon was the one that coined the whole two pizza team concept, mm -hmm. right? The team should be no larger than what two large pizzas can serve comfortably, right? Nobody's looking for, you know, more food after we have a team lunch. The interesting thing is Amazon has since abandoned that. They don't really talk about, they don't really believe in the two pizza team thing anymore because that's really more a discussion of organizational design than it is distributed system design. Part of what they were going after was the idea of what we now call DevOps, which actually some folks from ThoughtWorks had been really championing before Amazon picked it up and sort of made it their own. And so microservices became this term that really kind of embraced a whole bunch of different things and, and conflated a whole bunch of different concepts. There's a little distributed system design. There's a little organizational design. There's a little DevOps in there. It's a whole bunch of different things. Practically speaking, though, because people didn't really understand what microservices were doing, except for the very highest levels, mm -hmm. which was we want to have lots of little services all over the place. 
they fell squarely into the trap of the fallacies of distributed computing. And they, they made the same mistake that we made with distributed objects 20 years prior, which was to say, take code, fragment it as finely as you can get it, and then scatter it across the network because that's a good thing. And I mean, anybody who lived through the Corba days or the DCOM days you know, knows the pain that we suffered as we spent so much time on the network wire shipping stuff back and forth in order to accomplish some particular task. And, you know, when I would bring this up to people, they'd say, oh, yeah, 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 but, 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 but it's microservices. You know, it's almost a tautology. Because it's a microservice, it's better. Okay, but what about all the time we're serializing, deserializing? What about all the time? I mean, these two services work very closely together. And as a matter of fact, they're coupled to the exact same database. One of the things we lost from the whole service-oriented thing was that, you know, data and persistence should be an implementation detail of the service. Services should never share the same database, right? Because that creates an implicit coupling between the two. But I can't tell you how many companies I talked to that said, oh, yeah, we've got 37 different microservices. Well, okay, so you have 37 different databases? Oh, don't be ridiculous. We've got one database. Otherwise, how would we do master data management? And it's like, oh my God, you just read, you just read too many books this year, didn't you? Right? Kind of like the days back patterns. I remember interviewing once at a company where the guy very proudly pulled the design patterns, gang of four book off his shelf. And I'm like, okay, patterns. I like where this is going. And he opened up the front cover where it had a list of all the patterns. And he had with a Sharpie checked off each one because if they were patterns, we have to to use them somewhere in our code base because they're patterns and therefore they're good. Yeah. Um, so what I think is going to happen is we, we're, we're going to look at all these microservices and realize, okay, there are some benefits to be had from modularizing our code. Shortly after the predictions, I put up a blog post that said, basically, you want modules, not microservices. Modularizing your code is a good thing, particularly if we follow some of the same design approach that microservices had. But we can do that without having to actually scatter them across the network. We can run them inside, for example, the same application server, right? You know, I, God forbid I use a term from the 2000s, but it might actually be appropriate here. We could run them on the same server, run them in the same Kubernetes cluster, whatever you want to call it. And that way we still get some of the benefits without losing all that time going across the network. And we don't, you know, there are certain scenarios where the act of taking data and hammering it into a shape that is suitable for transmission across the network, only to hammer it back into its original shape. I mean, this is just silly, right? Maybe choose an in-memory transport for two services that are closely clustered together but frankly, if these are microservices that are both built by the same team, just fuse them together into a single service because chances are good the team's going to release in, in lockstep with itself anyway, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if that's really the goal, if it's an organizational design problem, we want these teams to be single-threaded. That's actually the term that Amazon prefers now. This is the thing they do. They'll just build it as one service. They'll build it as a monolith, but it'll be a team monolith as opposed to a corporate monolith. And I think mm -hmm. that's that's probably the distinction that a number of people are going to lose as they start going back to monolithic construction. Also a bit part of this this team, you said yeah, you have people with, with different roles. On the other hand, you have full stack developers. 
-hmm. I find that a very hard term. What is a full stack developer? And you say um, the demand for them will, will grow, but can you ever be a full stack developer in current oh, no. technology? <laughs> no, 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 no. The full stack developer is a unicorn. Yeah. Because here's the thing, right? As, so let's roll back five, six, seven years, right? As you are starting to build a team and as you are looking to embrace some of this DevOps stuff, right? You want to start, you know, you want to blur the lines between development and operations so that you have one team handling both, right? Now, the fun thing about this is recruiting is hard. It's difficult to find people with skills, right? And it's hard to actually take different people with different skill sets and assemble them onto a team. So the easiest thing for me to do as a hiring manager, particularly because most of the time I'm going to take a job description and hand it off to a recruiter and make this their problem, not mine. I'm going to say, here is a laundry list of everything I need. I need a developer that has... They need to know database design. They need to know architecture. They need to know infrastructure. They need to know the networking stack. They need to know React. They need to know CSS. They need to be user experience designers. Oh, and they need to be race car drivers, right? I mean, just you just start laying out all these different things that you need for the team. And so when people said, well, what are you trying to do? You're basically asking for somebody who is an expert jack of all trades, which mm -hmm. by definition is, you know, is a, is a non, I mean, it's just a nonsensical term. Mm -hmm. There's right? actually a meme of that with, with all this list of requirements. And then at the end, actually you're asking for an IT team. You're not asking for a full exactly. stack developer. Exactly. And that's the thing, right? Whenever I see somebody looking for a full stack developer, what I see is basically an admission of defeat by the hiring manager. The hiring manager does not want to play puzzle games with their people anymore. So what they want are 12 carbon copies of the same unicorn. That's basically what they're saying, right? I want 12 carbon copies. You know, to a certain degree, I have a certain amount of sympathy because when you look at American football, right, you need a quarterback, you need some wide receivers, you need some running backs, and they all need to have different skill sets for each of these roles. You could never take an offensive lineman and turn him into a cornerback right on the defense because they're just built differently, mm. right? They they deliberately have, you know, trained their bodies differently to do different things and so forth. And, you know, professional football coaches who are paid millions of dollars a year have a hard time assembling these puzzle pieces into such a way that the whole is better than the sum of its parts. So whenever somebody says, hey, I'm looking for a full stack developer, what I'm hearing them saying is, I'm looking for somebody that has all the skills because I am tired of trying to put together teams made out of disparate parts. And frankly, I lose respect for those hiring managers that do that. It is hard. I've done it. I've put teams together from disparate parts before. And it is hard because there's always that fear that that one person that has that one skill then leaves the team and all of a sudden you're high and dry. But this is partly where as a manager, you need to go and you need to flesh out, you need to cross train, right? There's somebody else on the team who's interested in that skill. So you do a little bit of shadowing and it takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. It takes you away from the, we've got to hit that deadline over there. That's where all of our focus should be. Mm -hmm. No, that's 
that's part of where the manager's focus would be. Part of the focus is how do I make my team stronger? And part of that is doing cross-training and looking for opportunities, even while the team is, you know, every every professional sports team is always trying to win the championship, but they're also always trying to set themselves up to win the championship next year and the year after. You can't abandon long-term planning and, you know, in favor of short-term planning, et cetera, et cetera. So what I think is going to happen is, you know, people are going to still ask for full stack developers. They're not going to find them. And, you know, what teams are going to do is some of what teams are doing now, which is to say, okay, crap, we can't find any full stack developers and we can't just leave these open positions open forever. Let's take what we can get and we're going to have to start putting puzzle pieces together again. I mean, it's a thing. It's just, it's, you know, there's, there's no resolution beyond that. Yeah, it's not about looking for full stack developers. It's looking for good teammates who can take Precisely. over, who can learn. Yeah, I've seen this in the past. Students who just left school, who didn't have the right experience, but were eager to learn. Sometimes they are really the best solution. Oh, the, the core criteria that I look for whenever I'm looking to staff up a team is I'm looking for people who demonstrate three things. They're hungry, they're humble, and they're smart. Mm -hmm. right? They're hungry. They want, they want to do more than they currently do. They want to make more. They want to learn more, you know, whatever it is, they've got a hunger inside them. That's going to drive them to be more than they currently are. They're humble, meaning they are willing to admit when they don't know things and are willing to listen to people that are, you know, they, that know something more than them on a particular topic or a particular area. And obviously smart, right? And here smart is, yes, you may have some core skills, but also you're smart enough to know how to learn, mm -hmm. right? Those are the three things I really want in a team. And so, you know, if I'm currently working a C-sharp project and you show me a senior 10-year veteran C-sharp developer who's like, yeah, I'm a C-sharp developer. I don't really care about any of those other .NET languages. C-sharp 4 was good enough for me. It should be good enough for anybody. And then you show me a three-year Java developer who says, I'd absolutely love for an opportunity to learn C-sharp and see how I will take the three-year Java developer mm -hmm. every time because they are hungry, humble, and smart. The other one is just smart. And one of the three is never better than three of the three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, once you settle in, in technology, you're becoming outdated very fast <laughs> these Pretty days. Yep. Okay. Yep. About uh, fast evolving technologies, uh, AI. What happened <laughs> the last months is, of course, we knew that all these things were evolving, but suddenly we had Chat GPT. Um, what I've seen at DevOx in Antwerp, they had a whole introduction movie generated with images from an AI system. It was there already for quite some time, but isn't it going very fast now? Yes and no. I mean, ChatGPT has really captured a lot of the, you know, there, there, there are these two aspects of, of artificial intelligence that have really captured the public's imagination, right? One is the ability to generate images based off of a plain text description, right? Which, like you said, DevOps, they had all, you know, the movie with all mm -hmm. that computer-generated art, et cetera. The other is the ability for chat GPT to be able to take plain text and turn around plain text responses, right? Now, 
there are several things which we're going to discover in the coming year, which I think are going to, you know, cool the jets around some of this AI stuff, right? Number one is, as we've discovered, there are a couple of legal issues that go along with some of this because, you know, all of this stuff has to be, you know, the, the current way in which we do a lot of this artificial intelligence is with modeling, right? We train based mm -hmm. on a given model. And so what Microsoft did, what GitHub did with Copilot is it trained it on a whole bunch of open source code. What ChatGPT did is it trained it off of a whole bunch of available pros. What the image recognition DALI did is it trained it off of a whole bunch of existing images. And in many cases, copyright and or attribution was not preserved because it's actually pretty hard to do when you're looking at an amalgamation of all of it. This sets up some really interesting legal problems, right? Because if, for example, I decide to write a fantasy fantasy fiction novel, right? And it happens to incorporate some ideas that Wizards of the Coast introduced as part of their D&D product. I mean, if they can prove definitively that this idea came from them and they had it first and I didn't provide proper attribution and pay the proper licensing, they're able to hit me for a significant financial sum, mm -hmm. right? Now, technically, you could argue, well, I mean, these ideas have been floating around all of human history for as long as man has been telling stories to one another. How do you prove that? Blah, blah, blah. This is where the copyright lawyers make all their money, is being able to prove or disprove that I stole the idea from Wizards of the Coast. But when we talk about these AI models, all of a sudden, there's no trail, there's no smoking gun of evidence that makes it clear. And so now all of a sudden, all of the content creators, the image creators, the prose creators, the code creators find themselves on the same side because now all of a sudden, I mean, there's a lot of open source folks who are like, wait a minute, we just trained Copilot, but you're mm -hmm. not, you're not giving anything back. And they're charging for it if you want to use it professionally. Exactly. Exactly. You're making money off of what could reasonably considered a derivative work, which violates the GPL very, mm -hmm. very, very bluntly, very basically, right? And LGPL, and there's some other licenses that don't care if you use, you know, if you use this as inspiration and create a derivative work, okay, that's fine. That's up to you. Just make sure you give attribution. Creative Commons requires the attribution of the, you know, there's all these different licenses with all these different terms. And Copilot was trained off of all this code without any concern for licensing whatsoever, as near as we can tell from the mm -hmm. outside. If there was some licensing, you know, if, if it's there, none of us outside of OpenAI have been able to see it. The same thing is true of images. The same thing is true of prose. Mm -hmm. And so while they're very exciting, right? I mean, it's really cool, right? A buddy of mine was over here at the house a couple nights ago. And while we're drinking whiskey, we're talking about chat GPT. And he's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm like, yeah, but it's wrong half the time. He's like, what? I'm like, seriously, ask it to write a bio for me. So he's like, all right, you know, chat GPT, write a bio for Ted Neward. And it did. And it got part of it right. The part that it lifted directly off of the bio that I use for a number of different conferences but then it claimed that I was CTO and co-founder of a consulting company that I've never founded and never been CTO of, but worked at like 12 years ago, right? And it claimed I was a member of the, 
what is it? it was a member of the executive board of the Java community process, which okay. I'm pretty sure, as you know, is not true. <laughs> it also claimed that I was a uh, board member of the International Association of Software Architects, which, while I have spoken at their events, sadly, they have yet to recognize my stellar leadership and give me that role. Yeah, but it's a system that based on, on next word prediction. So if it makes sense to put this word after the previous one, yeah, then, then uh, I saw a tweet of a professor who said, I'm going to ask my students to write a text with chat GPT and then find all the mistakes in it and correct it yeah. and then deliver me both and, and the process of going from what chat GPT gave and, and the, the, the final result. Yeah, it's, it uh, gives titles of books which don't exist, but... What we have seen particularly with both ChatGPT and Copilot, as well as DALI, we're seeing perhaps a, a, a significant improvement in natural language processing. The ability to take spoken language and be able to correctly infer what was being asked or what was being said. But it's not a general purpose artificial intelligence. And so what's going to happen is over this next year, People are going to start exploring it. I mean, the most natural thing is, oh, my God, chatbots. We're going to use ChatGPT for chatbots. And they're going to wire ChatGPT directly up to it, paying an exorbitant licensing mm -hmm. fee. And then all of a sudden, ChatGPT is going to say, hey, welcome to Amazon. What would you like me to do? Well, I need you to take this back. Oh, I'm so sorry. How, As compensation, how about we give you a free, look them up, look them up. How about we give you a free car, right? And all of a sudden, Amazon's on the hook to give somebody a free car. And that's when we're going to start seeing pulling it back and saying, now, wait a second. You, yes, understanding what people are saying and, and analyzing their speech and, and, you know, acting very human, you know, questions of the Turing test start to come to mind here again. But you can't say stuff that's not true. You can't say stuff that's going to put us in a legal bind. And so natural language processing, yes, we have made significant strides in that. But what we're going to find in 2023 is now what do we do with it? How do we use this stuff successfully not to do really flashy demos, but to in fact actually make, you know, to, to use this effectively within our company? Mm -hmm. The, the precedent for this is really obvious. Everybody remembers IBM Watson, right? I mean, Watson went on Jeopardy for crying out loud and won, right? Mm -hmm. And the Jeopardy champion of all time said, I welcome our new robotic overlords. And then what? What happened then? Where did mm -hmm. it go? What, you know, IBM tried very hard to sell Watson to a number of companies, but found that they weren't getting a whole lot of takers because the ability to answer trivia questions in the form of a question on a game show doesn't translate well to me trying to wrangle my enterprise corporate mm -hmm. data, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's the part that we need to wrestle with now. 2023 and 2024, I think you're going to see a number of folks creating some prototype projects that utilize these technologies And then they're going to start to realize the limitations and say, oh, now we get it, right? Mm -hmm. Again, it's the classic gardener curve, right? You know, we're not, right now we are climbing that whole peak of, of illusion, the whole peak of hype. And very shortly, we're going to drop into the trough of disillusionment. 
because that's when we start to figure out what we can use it for. Mm -hmm. You could give it, for instance, some code and ask what will be the result if you're doing code reviews or if you're getting into a new project. Some feedback on code or give me an example of this. But yeah, again, is the result correct? It's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll see some some very nice uh, evolutions, I think. Uh, but yeah, I yeah, I find it amazing on one hand, and a bit of uh, yeah, frightening. It's on dangerous. The other. Yeah, it's dangerous. I mean, I think, I think for people who are looking to understand code, right, particularly if the comments appear to be out of date, right, the ability to uh, because code has something that most natural language doesn't, which is precise semantics, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's formal semantics around any programming language with the possible exception of Perl, which is just a dumpster fire of a language anyway. So we won't include them amongst good programming languages. But for every other language, there's a pretty nice formal semantics model about what this means. So I can take code, throw it at a system like Copilot and say, explain to me what this mm -hmm. does. And it'll be able to, and based on some of the knowledge of its model, be able to tell you perhaps the first level above, okay, what this does is this, which looks like it's calculating a CRC, right? It's still not going to tell us why we need this calculation of a CRC, but I do think that just like we had automated code generators like Javadoc to help us do some of the formatting and some of the heavy lifting of extracting parameters and doing the formatting and so forth, I think we could start to see within the next 18 months tools that will help us do that for some of our code, particularly for legacy code bases. Mm -hmm. That could be very powerful. It won't tell us why, but it will tell us what. And then we can perhaps annotate the why or annotate the what with the why in order to have some really nice, you know, long-term surviving documentation. Mm -hmm. But again, it's going to take us a while to figure that out and figure out where and how that applies and, and how best to use it. This year will be the year of figuring all that stuff out. I'm looking forward to our chat in a year, <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially this topic. Me um, too, me too. You say hiring will accelerate at the end of Q1 of this year. So we've yes. seen massive layoffs at many big companies. Yep. Yep. On the other hand, small companies which are looking for people uh, have yep. a benefit in this whole story. Do you think these big companies will come back to the hiring market or do you see another evolution? Part of what I think happened during 2020 and 2021, you remember the labor market was white hot in tech. I mean, companies were throwing ridiculous sums of money to try to hire developers, right? It was not unheard of for employee referrals for tech jobs to be five-digit bonuses, right? Mm -hmm. We'll give you $10,000, $15,000 if you can, you know, throw us a candidate who makes it all the way through the interview process and, and gets a gets an offer. It's here for like three months. That's the typical terms of a hiring referral bonus. I mean, 15 grand, right? For some people, that was 10% of their annual mm -hmm. salary just for, you know, here, here's a friend, you know, and, and get them interviewed and so forth. Companies were so paranoid, particularly the big ones, were so paranoid that they were going to be labor sh labor short that I think what they did is they overhired. Mm -hmm. I, I think what the, and the big companies in particular, they tend to have a lot of room to be able to carry a little excess uh, weight, right, fat, whatever you want to call it. They overhired. I think they overstaffed some of their teams and some of their departments. 
I think they were also over aggressive in terms of the kinds of projects they were going to do. And so in 2022, you know, as the pandemic appeared to be ramping back down, as we started to get some of this, you know, work from home, work from office controversy beginning to erupt, coupled with the fears domestically and abroad that we were entering a recession, coupled with the war in Ukraine, and a whole bunch of companies went, whoa, baby, hold on, hold on. We need to stop and rethink this here because... As a CFO, I'm responsible for the company's financial health, and I need to really stop and take stock. Yes, there are a bunch of IT projects we want to do, but we also have to make sure we're maintaining a certain amount of physical discipline. Let's go looking through our, our you know, let's go looking through the records. Let's go looking through what we've hired, what we've got. And then I think everybody was kind of looking around, waiting to see what anybody else would do. Because remember, a lot of what happens on the business stage is very much a, I'm looking for what other people will do before I decide what it is I do, mm -hmm. right? And so when some of the startups, right, some of the unicorns, what, what I saw personally is a couple of the big startups would take another round of funding and then almost immediately announce layoffs, mm -hmm. which is actually not uncommon because usually when you take a round of funding, you add a couple of seats to your board. And the first thing the new board members want to do is they want to show that they are valuable. And so the easiest way to do that is to conduct an internal audit and say, oh my gosh, we need to trim costs. We need to make sure that we're running lean. That's the new hot phrase of, of the, the decade. We need to make sure we're running lean. So let's cut some of these things. And the next thing you know, we've had a round of layoffs, right? Okay, one did it, and then another did it, and then another did it. And some of these startups, quite frankly, they weren't, I mean, they hadn't proven that they were, in fact, viable, sustainable businesses anyway. They were really surviving off of investor money, not actual, you know, income. And some of them got caught because the investor money kind of paused. And all of a sudden, when you can't take rounds to keep everything going, now it's not just a whoa, Nelly. It's a, we just hit a wall, mm -hmm. right? And suddenly a lot of people got let go. And then the big company said, okay, that's where we are right now. So let's do some internal fact-finding. Let's see where things are. Let's see how things develop, right? And then, of course, the middle of the year, the war in the Ukraine starts up. The European Union all of a sudden starts cautioning that they may not have enough gas to be able to heat people's homes. And, you know, some of the ramifications of Brexit finally came home to a bunch of the folks in the UK, coupled with some inflation, which in many cases was due to CEOs of corporations looking to make more money, not because of any intrinsic, you know, dangers in the market and what have you. And all of these things combined to say to Microsoft and Amazon and Google, you know what, we probably should do a certain amount of trimming as well, right? We've been carrying a little extra, you know, it's just like, you know, you, you get done with the holidays, you had a little bit too much Christmas fudge, it's time to hit the treadmill and it's time to start, you know, time to start shedding some of those pounds. This is not to minimize anybody who was affected by the layoffs mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination, um, but... It is, I mean, it is kind of, I think, what happened. And I've talked with some folks that I know 
inside of Microsoft, inside of Amazon, who have basically said, yeah, there's kind of a wait and see, but there are a lot of hiring managers who are basically saying, look, I have roles that need to be filled that couldn't be filled by the folks that we had hired. I'm waiting for the green light before I start to aggressively try to fill those roles. And enough of them have said this, and I keep watching companies that are, you know, looking for people in new roles, both both at the bottom of the org chart as well as at the top. I really think this is a momentary hiccup. I don't think we're in the middle of a recession, much less a great recession or a depression. I really think this was a, as they say, a market correction. And so, I mean, the holidays are always a terrible time to be looking for a job. So I think as we come out of the holidays and people start to feel a little bit better about what's going to happen financially in the new year, inflation has come back down. Prices have started to get back to where they were, you know, six to 12 months ago. Yeah, I think we're getting ready to pull out of it. And Mm -hmm. I think tech, maybe it's not going to be quite as blisteringly hot as it was back in 2022. Maybe you won't be able to get that new Porsche as a hiring bonus for signing on with a new company. But I think a lot of folks are going to be able to find the jobs if they were laid off within the last two, three months. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll be perfectly blunt. I've been looking for the past year, all of 2022, which I mentioned in the predictions, all of 2022, I was looking for my next full-time role. And twice I thought I had something and twice things sort of conspired to collapse them apart. But I've had a constant stream of conversations with folks and, you know, it's just been bad luck in many respects that I'm not currently Ted Neward's, you know, company name here kind of thing. And so I I genuinely believe that, you know, there is hope on the horizon and it's never really been that far away. But when you're in the middle of the gloom, it's hard to recognize that this is just a fog and not darkness. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And that's kind of where I think we're at. I think mm-hmm. by the end of first quarter, we're going to break out into the sunlight. And people are going to go, oh, that wasn't so bad. That wasn't so terrible. And then a couple of years from now, we'll, we'll you know, we'll talk mm-hmm. about it and laugh over beers with friends at the pub because, you know, whatever. It was just a thing. Let's hope that this is a prediction that uh, definitely will be succeeded uh, after hey. one year. Uh, for all these people who are now looking for a job because yeah. Yeah, the strangest I, I was going to say funny, but it's not funny. A CEO layoff story is definitely Twitter. What, <laughs> what happened there is I've been on Twitter for as long as it exists, I think. I found my current job thanks to my contacts and tweets. Yeah. And, and yeah. it really hurts what's happened there. It, it hurts how the people are treated who are working there. Mm-hmm. With Fuji, we started a Mastodon server for the Java community to have a better place, a more friendlier place at this moment. You're predicting that Twitter will get sold again? I think Elon's not going to have a choice. Remember, mm-hmm. Elon didn't spend $44 billion of his own money, mm-hmm. right? He got together a group of investors and used that to purchase Twitter. And we don't know who the complete group is, although certainly there have been rumors, You know, for example, that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is one such major contributor and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is Twitter, Twitter's value is tanking in a major way. I mean, there was a story recently, I don't know how widespread it got, but Twitter hasn't paid rent on its buildings here in Seattle 
As a matter of fact, they fired all the janitorial staff, so the people working in the building have to bring their own toilet paper from home. This is not sustainable. This is in no way a sustainable model. And people repeatedly keep running into situations where all of a sudden the Twitter service is unavailable, their timeline is gone, etc. I think a lot of people expected that Twitter was going to crash overnight, and that would be it. Twitter.com would be a, you know, unresponsive domain and that's it. Everybody's, you know, everybody's gone home the end. That's not generally how these things crater. It takes time, right? I mean, there's a lot of redundancy that the people who are there built into the network. And yeah, these pieces are going to fall apart. The technical debt is accelerating rapidly at Twitter, but it has not yet reached a point of critical malfunction, mm -hmm. right? Will it get there? Possibly, particularly if Elon continues to be Elon. And there's no signs that he's not going to, you know, there's, there's no signs that he's going to change about anything. If anything, he seems to be courting more and more of the fringe right-wing voice and attracting more and more people, which quite frankly is going to alienate more and more of the Twitter employees that are there. Right. But be that as it may, I mean, Twitter is not the kind of thing that you can run with 150 people out of a single office. It's just, it's too big. It's its almost a utility. And in many respects, I will liken what's what I think is going to happen to Twitter back to what happened to Java. Remember when Java was owned by Sun Microsystems? Sun did a lot of amazing things with Java, mm -hmm. but they were terrible stewards. They were They just did not know how to make money at anything, right? And there were some fears, you know, that, that Java was going to absolutely crater, that it was just going to, you know, disappear. And then I remember one day waking up and all of Java land, all of the people involved in Java were absolutely in a panic because IBM, there was a rumor that IBM was going to buy Java that IBM was going to buy Sun Microsystems and now IBM would own Java and everybody thought that was a fate worse than death, right? Whether or not it would have been, I don't know. But very shortly thereafter, like within weeks, Oracle announced their purchase of Java because the Java brand had reached a point where the price was so low that somebody, in this case, Oracle said, we can't afford not to buy them. I mean, Oracle is and has been for quite some time the largest consumer of Java. They use Java to, to build all of their, their UI stuff. They use it everywhere. They've embedded it in, into the Oracle database since at least Oracle 8i. They are huge, huge consumers of Java. And so it made sense for Oracle to acquire Java once the price reached a point where it was like, oh, yeah, we can do this out of petty cash. Not a big deal. And they did. And whether or not Oracle has been a good steward for Java, we can debate that. And that's that's the model, I think, that's going to happen to Twitter. Now, interestingly enough, there has already been an offer for Twitter. One of these other billionaires who mm -hmm. really doesn't like Elon Musk presented Elon with almost exactly the same letter that Elon presented the Twitter board when he bought them. And, and basically, he said, look, I'll offer you. Here is, he actually had a video of a briefcase filled with a billion dollars of cash, right? Like, I don't know if these were $100,000 bills or, or what, but he had a video. Here is a suitcase filled with a billion dollars cash, and there's 11 more behind it 
if you want to sell Twitter, because I don't think that's, you know, I don't think the current executive leadership will honor the stewardship of something that's this important. It needs to be a private company. And Elon has lost more money in this year than any other figure in history, <laughs> right? I mean, his rise to be the richest person in the world was spectacular, but his fall has been even more so. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you know, realistically, as a billionaire, you're only as rich as your reputation allows you to be, because a lot of what these these folks do is they don't spend their own money. They they collect investors mm-hmm. to actually help back their play that they lead so that they have the largest share, which gives them the owning control. But you got all these other players with you. And if all those other players turn around and say, no, we're not going to follow you into this. I mean, you, you've made a mess of this. And I think some of those folks are going to turn around and demand. They're going to start putting pressure on Elon to actually do something different. Because what he's been doing has just been nothing. I mean, the Twitter checkmark is about to get more expensive. And look at all these features coming soon, which have been listed as coming soon mm-hmm. for the last six months. There's been no new features that have been released on Twitter. The whole verification process has become a nightmare. Every time they say they've changed it, a journalist from the Wall Street Journal goes off and tries to get verified as some famous figure and is successful in doing so. So clearly their verification is Mm -hmm. a sham. They're very quickly losing everything that made Twitter a utility. And so I think before too long, I mean, unless Elon really, really just out of sheer spite wants to be the last person to turn the lights out on a deserted building, he's going to have to sell. He's going to have to sell it to somebody. If if it's not in 23, it has to be in 24, assuming there's anything left in 24. Mm-hmm. And the fact is there's too much value intrinsic in the Twitter name, intrinsic in the Twitter, you know, lists, right? I mean, Look at how many celebrities are on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Look at how many people amassed such a huge amount of following on Twitter, made their names on Twitter, et cetera. There's significant value in that. So just owning the domain name and all of the apps and devices that talk to it, that that's worth that's worth $10 billion right there. It's just mm-hmm. not worth $54 billion or whatever ridiculousness that Elon paid for it. And that number is dropping with every passing day and every new controversy that Elon loves to court. I mean, maybe he's just interested in watching the world burn. I don't think so. I don't think you get to be the richest man in the world by looking to make it all burn. But who knows? Maybe he's mm-hmm. decided, you know what? I'm going to die someday and I don't want to actually, you know, have to figure out where my money should go. So let's just see if I can fritter it all away with with right. bad decisions and become a case study for business school for mm-hmm. years and years and years to come. Oh, he already is, I think. Um, oh, yeah. If, if there's one thing people may, may start to realize now with, with this whole Twitter thing going on is we are actually the product being sold. Eh? We we are the product being sold by Twitter, by Facebook, by LinkedIn. Um, and people realize I've created a lot of content on, the, on this platform, but it's lost. If Twitter disappears, I've, I'm losing my, my history of all the things I've done. And maybe that, that's one thing that Mastodon has done really great. If you want to move from an instance, you can do so. You can mm-hmm. export your data. There are some some. Uh, projects going on that that you own your digital self 
Um, you also predict that the whole cloud ID will shift in this, this respect. So there are laws coming that the US is forcing companies to store US data in the US. The same goes for, for Europe. What will go on there in that market of cloud data storage? To be really clear, the, many of those laws have already existed, right? I remember even, you know, I think it's a decade ago now, uh, I was working for a consulting company and we were talking with a multinational and this multinational was dealing with corporate financial data in Europe. And there is a law on the books in Germany that says that German financial corporate data, right? So the books, the accounting books for any German corporation must remain on German soil, period, full stop. Mm -hmm. So one of the key criteria for selecting a cloud provider was a cloud provider that would have a data center in all of the places that they knew of that had one of these laws on the books, right? I mean, the Chinese government is ridiculously uh, diligent about it. You know, Chinese data must remain on Chinese soil behind the Great Firewall, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, the European Union, I mean, number of years ago with GDPR and then the United States sort of relaxed some of its safe harbor provisions, which made a lot of the EU nervous. There's, there's been a sort of low-lying tension going on within the cloud around some of this. What we're starting to find is, A, on a personal note, yeah, where is my data, right? If Twitter goes under and I lose all of those videos that I recorded, I lose all of those witty sayings that I said, all of those links to, to tweets that I've tossed off over the years, all those announcements that were made, all of those, you know, I mean, quite frankly, Twitter is being archived in, in the, you know, the, the Library of Congress. So technically, none of that stuff is being lost. But will I have access to it? Mm -hmm. Or will I have to actually go and, you know, somehow log on to the, the Library of Congress in order to retrieve stuff that I said, things that I created, etc. All of this realistically all of this is going to uh cause us particularly at a a corporate level to really rethink how we're going to engage with the cloud where we want things in the cloud i mean originally the cloud was all about being able to you know being able to scale significantly and scale on demand a lot of it was really about scalability and we'll worry about the data mm -hmm. later right now really i think what we're going to find is is we're going to start, we're going to need to start thinking about where some of that data goes. We're going to start wanting to think more about where that data is stored. We're going to want to like have some visibility into the data, right? I mean, it started with GDPR, but California has already passed the law, you know, the forget me law that says, if you call up any particular company and say, I need you to forget about me, they need to delete all of the data regarding you that isn't necessary for the business to conduct mm -hmm. business with you, right? So if like, if I have a mortgage with Rocket Mortgage, I can't just call them up and say, forget about me. And now my mortgage is canceled. It would be nice, but no, right? And so companies are going to have to start rethinking about like how, how the virtual world operates. We've been really, really lax about saying, oh yeah, data just flows wherever. It's in the cloud. It's just in the cloud. But geographic boundaries and geographic uh, ownership is still a thing. And as long as we 
remain separate nations, separate states, you know, separate whatever, that's going to, I think that's going to start to make its way felt into the cloud. And and a number of CEOs are going to start thinking about, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea if we have a little bit better control, a little bit better ownership of this. The other thing, very bluntly, is the costs of the cloud are really starting to make themselves known. A lot mm-hmm. of people have started doing the ma- doing the math and running the numbers and realizing, you know, once you reach a certain level of scale, it is actually cheaper for you to own your own data center than it is to continue to pay Microsoft and Google to run your data center. And so I think that's, that's going to come into play. And I think that's going to drive, uh, I, I think, if the cloud companies are smart, part of what they're going to do is they're going to figure out how to take their cloud and run it on your hardware and your dirt so that you can be provisioned and managed through the same sort of dashboard and interface that you know azure.com provides you. But it's still, I can put certain data on, you know, we're going to extend the cloud from Microsoft data centers into your data center because you're going to run certain services, certain demons, et cetera. Now you can manage it from one console, but you now have better control over the topology. That's kind of, I think, the seismic shift that's going to occur in the cloud because too many companies are starting to say, "Mm, yeah, but where are you storing this data? How are you storing this data? And, you know, why are you storing this data? Because I didn't ask you to store it. Mm where in the cost eh? so we have devops we have devsecops and now we have finops so the financial operations what does this actually cost it's definitely something yeah to take into well, account and, and that 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 brings up its own thing right because devops was about trying to knock down the silos between developer and operations and then devsecops is trying to knock down the silos between dev security and operations and next thing you know, it's going to be prod DevSecOps, right? Knocking the walls down between the product folks and the DevSecOps folks. And before too long, we're just going to have to call it enterprise ops. And everybody in the company is going to have to know everything about everything in the company. So you're going to have to be not only an accounting expert, a developer expert, a expert, a, a, a product expert, you know, you're also going to have to be the janitor and the CEO. I mean, if you it, it, otherwise, you're not a full stack developer, mm-hmm. right? Just to go back to what we said earlier. I mean, it's getting mm-hmm. ridiculous, and I think mm-hmm. I don't know if I said it in this year's tech predictions, but I do think we're going to start to see some stratification back because I, as much as the ideal for DevOps is, you know, let's knock down the 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 walls, the barriers, the silos between Dev and Ops. We're just starting to realize that there are a lot of other silos that really deserve to be more permeable. The mm-hmm. membranes need to be more permeable. We need to allow for more of this horizontal conversation. But that becomes untenable once we start adding more and more into that mix. Mm-hmm. And so, again, this is really a question of organization design, not technology. And I think that's going to be one of the realizations that the DevOps folks are going to come to is that a lot of what they've really been pushing is an organization design uh, methodology, not a technical methodology. And we need to extend that organizational design discussion to much further than just the developers and the operations. Mm -hmm. We are so spoiled as developers with this whole cloud ID 
you want to use this service, yeah, you just start it and then you connect it and. Oh yeah. All I need is the CEO's credit card. Mm -hmm. That's all I need. Just give me the CEO's credit card or give me a virtual credit card mm -hmm. and I'll just sign up for it. And now I, as the developer, because part of the whole thing of cloud is, Hey, not my circus, not my monkeys. Mm -hmm. I just want to write code, get out of my way. And if I rack up a $250,000 cloud bill, well, I mean, that's just, that's just the price of doing business. You mm -hmm. wanted this project CEO. So yeah, it's going to cost us a quarter million dollars to do this project for three people in marketing that need this like once a year. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of rethinking uh, a, mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff and um, you know, cloud is going to have to adjust. And let's hope that this also has an impact on ecological, all this energy being burned in the clouds. That's all the crypto bros, right? Yeah. And mining their coin. We could just like take those guys and just kind of chuck them into the sun so that they get all the solar power they need to run their massive mm -hmm. array of, of GPUs and whatnot. So much of the energy problem would start to solve itself, mm -hmm. right? We started with this and that's happening anyhow. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're melting down. That's definitely that's true. Def definitely <laughs> true. This was my very personal selection of your predictions uh, of last year and, and this year. Is there something you definitely want to add? I alluded to it earlier, right? Part of what I would love, and I, and I put this in the predictions that, you know, hey, some company will hire Ted and Ted will be ridiculously happy there. And that hasn't happened. So, you know, if you're listening to this and your company could use, you know, an engineering manager or a DevRel manager, you know, who can do this sort of thing, uh, I, could, I could use with a referral. I could use with a, hey, boss, maybe we should talk to this guy kind of thing. I think you're also uh, really a full stack developer, so. Oh, stop, stop, <laughs> <laughs> just stop. Honestly, um, the, the, the thing that, you know, the thing that I'm, that I'm kind of curious about and, and I'm, I'm, I've been kind of holding my breath for a couple of years now, and I think I'm starting to see some movement here is around, we in this industry have really been looking for our next big ism right our, our next big uh oriented right we had object oriented and functional programming came around and and you know a percentage of folks really kind of flocked to it but functional never really attached itself to a problem that people need to solve on a regular basis i thought functional and services would go together hand in glove and if some of these functional languages would have just demonstrated how how the principles of functional programming really mirror those of service programming, the functional guys would absolutely have catapulted and we would all be embracing functional programming or object functional hybrids, which I think is really where the magic is at. Um, we would have embraced those a long, long time ago and languages like C Sharp and Java would, would be clearly on the downslope, right? Uh, whereas today we still see people factoring in a whole bunch of new features into it. Everybody's getting excited. Um, I think that we are seeing with the rise of all of the low code and no code platforms and with the realization that I can create something that runs on top of the JVM or runs on top of the CLR, um, you know, we're starting to see that there is some, some fungibility here in how I express the code. I think that we're going to see some languages emerge that will start to take us in a 
newer, higher abstraction level direction. One of the ones I've been following for quite some time is Ballerina. Mm -hmm. uh, Ballerina is a programming language by the WSO2 folks. And it is really one of the first service-oriented programming languages I've seen. It's got some concepts from functional. It's got some concepts from object. But really, the driving principle is this is a language for producing and consuming services. And so it has, it doesn't have implementation inheritance the way that we think about it from Java, but it has some measure of composition that could very closely mimic that of inheritance without having to deal with some of the, you know, some of the nastier things around implementation inheritance and so forth. I think it charts a really nice path. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think there are some things I would still like them to add to the language. I think there are a couple of things they threw in there that I don't think are all that, that, that critical to their success. But I think that this is, this is what we've been looking for because 25, 30 years ago, when you sat down to write a GUI program, a Windows or Mac or, or X Windows, because that's what we had at the time, and you did it in C, you had just voluminous amounts of code and multiple files you had to write just to get a Hello World up and running. And then object-oriented programming and object-oriented frameworks, MFC and OWL and so forth, came along and married those two concepts up very, very nicely against one another. So now I could do hello world in a GUI in like five lines of code, mm -hmm. right? Even today, if you do a hello world GUI in swing, it's like five lines of code. The same thing I think we're running into with respect to services and particularly building a service that ships all the way to production. If you want to do this, you use any of the stacks, Java stack, .NET stack. It's a large amount of code, a lot of it, which will be scaffolded out for you. But we had those kinds of code generators 25, 30 years ago, too. Getting it down to one source file and one compiler that produces an artifact that it can immediately be shipped off to production, Ballerina will actually produce a Docker image for you. Mm -hmm. And then you take that Docker image and throw it into your Kubernetes cluster, and you're done. That's 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 kind of a game changer. And, and we noticed now that .NET has started to embrace some of that concept as well. I think we're about to see, and again, I've been waiting for like a half decade for this to happen, but we programmers, for all that we embrace the new, we are reluctant to embrace the new, the truly new, right? I think we're we're starting to see some of that. I think we're starting to say, you know what? Yeah, Java's great and all, but, you know, it would be nice if... And some of this, Kotlin has made a lot of strides to achieving a certain amount. And people are, are like, oh, that's not, that's not terrible. That's not bad. I could do Kotlin in Java and run on the JVM and it all just, just works. And is Swift, same thing over there in the iOS world. I really think that um, we're going to start to see people exploring new ideas in some of these languages. And that's going to kick off the next oriented, whatever it is. It'll take a couple of couple of couple of years minimum for it to really manifest itself. But I'm hoping that 23 is the year where we really start to seriously say, is objects really the best we can do? And the answer is no. So let's actually see what more we can do. Mm -hmm. That's my, that's my hope. That's my personal private. I really want to see this happen. Hope. 
That's a very nice conclusion to this whole list of predictions and, and reviews. Uh, thank you very much, Ted, uh, for being the guest of this Fuji podcast. And thank you for listening. Uh, keep an eye on Fuji for future articles about development and everything related to the GVM world. Give me a Foo, give me a J, give me the friends of OpenJDK.